Welcome to some Derps Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about a thing called indification. But before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks what this we do on this podcast? On this podcast, we like to talk about games, okay? And, uh, and a couple of weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago, last week? No, it was two weeks was... ago. We did an episode on what I called roguelitification, right? And, uh, and we did that whole episode. We talked about how games are picking up more and more sort of roguelike tendencies in their sort of core design ethos. And I sort of talked about how, you know, in my head, I view this as a player mastery thing. Players are smarter. They are better. They have deeper ingrained understandings of design and systems. So they are, ha- they are able to handle more complex systems in a way that is, um, I don't know, just like a like a next level apparatus on top of uh, you know on top of the way that they have been playing games originally. I I likened this to you know games in the late '90s and early 2010s are very linear experiences, right? Point A to point B, right? Um, roguelikes are web-like 3D experiences, right? You're still going from point A to point B, but you are you are able to go to all these different other sorts of nodes and mastery of the game and completion of a game of the game um, is about an understanding of that web of sort of like nodes and probabilities and and builds all this other kind of stuff um, that is sort of like layered on top of I guess uh, you know these these sorts of like linear journeys that was roguelitification I also talked about souls likeification which is like the worst word I've ever uttered in my fucking life because I already don't really like the the genre of souls like and indification. Today we're talking about indification. In my view, these are the three pressures. These are the three forces that are kind of acting on games as a whole, as like a as like a culture, as a market, as all this other stuff. And to me, indification is really just like the the summing up of what are the market forces doing to the games that we play. Right? How are market pressures essentially defining these gaming kinds of experiences? And kind of my core thesis on this one is that um, AAA publishers rule scope, okay, and scale. That's not something indies can really compete on all that much. But in general, Indies seem to be kind of, and I actually got a great, I, I said this before, but I got a great piece of evidence for this. Indies seem to be kind of out-competing AAA by being cheaper, by being quicker to develop, um, by having fewer, you know, kind of like knobs and levers to sort of pull on, um, and by, you know, uh, taking advantage, I guess I would say, of some of the ingrained, adva- ingrained advantages in the way that indie games sort of sort of work. So what we're sort of seeing is the what maybe we I would have said 15 years ago is AAA forces are pressing indie games out of the market, right? At least like the Steam Greenlight era, right? Like it is hard for indie games to make a to kind of like make their mark because there's a lot of gatekeeping from plat- platform holders. Uh, there's a lot of money for for marketing. There's not a lot of access, not a lot of discoverability. Now we're in sort of the opposite position. I think AAA companies are getting pressured by indie companies because a lot of those rules have sort of flipped. And we can talk about some of the specifics, uh, some of the specifics of that stuff, I guess. Yeah. No. Um. I think I generally agree with pieces of that. I think. Um. 
like to your point there's, there's a lot of this is based market pressures. I think you can even see that in like the wider market, right? There's a lot of new direct-to-consumer companies that are even kind of like growing outside of like, say, the Amazon ecosystem when it comes to e-commerce, right? Like every fucking ad you hear on every podcast, it's like buy, you know, better help or like, you know, semen vitamins or whatever, you know, whatever um, podcaster is selling. That's all like companies that have chosen to advertise directly to consumers, um, instead of, you know, going through, like, more traditional uh, media routes and instead of, like, selling through a storefront, right? Like, um, instead of, you know, going to Walmart and being like, Walmart, please put my, put my you know, vitamins up on the shelf or, uh, you know, they will tell, you know, Joe Rogan or NPR, I guess NPR doesn't really take sponsorships, but, like, you know, um, uh, whatever another example of a popular podcast is because I don't listen to popular podcasts, but like uh, the daily, maybe, um, you know, they will say, you know, OK, we will give you some money for you to say to your listeners, buy this. Right. And uh, that's how we will get the word out. And uh, then we won't have to pay the overhead of like of, you know, Walmart taking a cut. We just have to pay like shipping costs. Right. Yeah, that's actually one of the interesting things. I never knew this, but I eventually learned this about grocery stores, which I thought was pretty interesting, is that grocery stores don't really make their money selling you the groceries. They make their money selling the store space. The, the, they essentially sell the plot on the aisle. Right. Or they like, I guess you'd maybe say rent the plot on the aisle to the bread manufacturer and the bread manufacturer puts its bread on that aisle and then they're the ones and that they're making their money out of actually selling the bread. Really the, the, the supermarket itself doesn't really care and doesn't, it doesn't make all that much out of actually selling this or that they make their money out of selling the the space on the aisle to the to the you know whoever lays potato chips right um which is just a really fascinating way to think about i don't think people conceive of the markets in those you know like supermarkets in those ways um yeah and i'm also i'm sure that that varies by like you know there are several mega brands right like um I think there's like three giant grocery store chains and then like there's usually like a regional local powerhouse right like by me right now it's uh or by, by where i am right now it's market basket which is like a long story new england uh company um and like when we where we grew up it was Shoprite, which is actually like a um a collective of uh like independent grocers that ha like share like warehousing um but like you know like, really i actually did not know that yeah um a collective is maybe the wrong term but it's, it's a cooperative i think is the correct term um but like star market is owned by the same people who own shaw's is owned by um i think the one of the big ones is um acme is owned by um Al albertson's i think is like the, the top line brand name but like giant and stop and shop i think are the same uh brand but th there's a couple of them um and, like, one of them owns a bunch of them, and the other one owns the other ones. And then, like, there are other weird pieces, right? Like, Whole Foods is owned by Amazon pretty famously. Um, yeah, Kroger is, I just looked at the the local grocery store that's all over around here is Ralph's in, in Los Angeles. And, uh, and Ralph's is owned by Kroger, I guess. Um, and it's my understanding is that they are, like, the big one that owns most of these kinds of, like, chains. So that, like, you know, whatever the dominant local sort of name for grocery stores in your area is, right, um, uh, a lot of the time it's going to be owned by Kroger or, one, like, one of the other ones. Yeah. Um, and, you know, there's, you know, that's, that's just kind of, like, again, uh, nature of, of kind of, like, um, 
market forces. But uh, anyway, uh, this is a little bit far afield of video game stuff. But uh, what do you want to talk about? Like, th this is your topic. I'll, I'll let okay, you yeah, this is my topic. So here, here's there's a couple of different component parts of this, and we can we can talk about them each in turn. Um, really, at the end of the day, I think the core thing is that flip that I described, right? Where it feels like indies are pressuring you know, AAA in a way that didn't used to, that didn't used to happen, basically. AAA was the name of the game in the mid-2000s, right? You know, like the Xbox 360 era would be a good kind of, this is when this is sort of like happening, um, because there's no good way to market indie games, right? There's no good avenue for an indie game to make it to a consumer. You have to go through platform holders, right? But the revolution that happened, which was kind of in the early 2010s, right? This is around indie game, the movie. This is around Super Meat Boy, Fez, right? Like those are the ones that are mentioned in the movie itself. But also Braid is in here. Uh, Bastion would be in here, right? You know, any of these, any of these kinds of titles. Um, these were the titles that were able, as in, you know, essentially indies, right, to kind of like crack through and prove to platform holders that there's a lot of value to sort of sourcing for this. Um, so Steam did away with Steam Greenlight and opened up its platform, right? Um, there's a whole piece of this that's 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 mobile, right? That's uh, on the on the mobile markets. And in fact, I would actually say that the true leader here is actually the Android. You know, like Play the store. Android Apple App Store. Yes, exactly. Like kind of fight uh, because this, the this, App Store. I just kind of because you said Android. I work for Google. I do not work on Android. My, okay. You know, all all that kind of standard stuff. But yes, yes, Android. Yeah, Android. yeah, yeah. Because because the App Store was pretty famously like actually locked down. It was very popular. Getting your app on the App Store was like a good thing. But like it was hard to make that happen. And then the Android sort of store kind of came up, um, which would eventually become the Google Play Store. And the Google Play Store, you know, the Android marketplace was much more open. Yes. And the openness of the Android store caused Apple to open up its platform, right, which caused tons of indie game development to happen in sort of the mobile space. And I think what happened was Steam essentially paired that with the success of these, you know, kind of high-profile indie games, um, a couple of whom had used its Steam Greenlight for sort of feature. Um, and then they were like, you know what, I'm just going to open up my, my platform. And now we're sort of at this point where the floodgates have been opened, and now every day... There are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, games getting getting released, um, most of which will never even see the light of day, right? And you are now at a, at a piece where you know there are these indie games that are that are all over Steam and never even showing up on anybody's page because of you know I don't know whatever, right? Um, but that process to me is is sort of the the thing. This is the this is the start of indification. This is how it happens in its most nascent kind of era because what follows on for this is now you have a pathway for two kind of pieces one of them is a business piece i'm a developer i wanted to i've wanted to get into video games all my life i love video games i love starcraft 2 i love you know i don't know mass effect i love uh halo 3 right and i go to work at Bungie is a QA tester, and I eventually kind of end up as a as a mid-level developer. It's now 2012, right? I'm a mid-level developer. I've been making mid-level developer money for a couple of years, but I've been getting crunched. You know, these games are tough. They're hard or, or whatever. I, I will and so also point out that you are making mid-level game developer money, which is much less than mid-level level kind of like standard software developer money. Okay. Yeah, true. Fair. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so, but this is to your point, right? Like, you know, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go on. And so you're feeling you're feeling this sort of pressure, right? And then a friend of yours comes by and he says, "Hey, uh, 
I just heard that the Microsoft Indie Fund, right, is, you know, if you make a pitch and you go and you say, hey, we're a couple of AAA developers. There's three of us. One of us is an artist. One of us is an engineer. The other is a designer. And we're going to make a game together. Microsoft will give me $250,000 to make us a, an indie game. You know, they'll, they'll publish our indie game on, on, like, the platform. And so you quit your job. You make your indie, you make your indie game studio, right? Um, you have kids coming out of school, right? I'm a kid. I grew up on, you know, Mario and Crash Bandicoot and whatever. And I went to, to college to become, you know, to, to a CS program somewhere, a computer sciences program somewhere. Um, maybe even one of the kind of nascent game design sort of programs and, and you know, like degrees. Something at RIT, for instance. There's a million people from RIT in the industry. I'm constantly meeting them because they had, you know, one of the, I don't want to say one of the first, but I don't know, one of the premier kind of like game programs um for any for any college in the u.s when kind of like we were going to school these these folks are coming out of college and they're looking and they're hungry for work they're looking for jobs but like what do you do when you are an unproven you know developer who has game design you know has this like wonky game design degree that nobody really like knows what to do with well you you go to work you make your you know you make your indie game you put together your your stuff you put it on you know you you put it on steam and you see how it goes that kind of stuff this is how i feel like the this groundswell is happening and we've already seen this happen before in history because it mirrors the exact same process that went on in the hollywood era in the 1960s um where basically the collapse of the big budget studios basically these huge huge budget studios like fox or whatever kind of like bet everything on individual like pictures that would end up kind of like bombing and like ruining the studio um and you had these guys who basically you know went to people like steven spielberg right martin scorsese this era of like directors these like famous like kind of directors they these are kids who were coming up in film schools in that time and kind of like getting their um i don't know getting kind of like their 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 boots on the ground right george lucas would actually be another really fantastic example he went to usc um we've seen this process happen before it's repeating again right now in games and the effects of it are kind of all around us, right? Even when I started in indie games, which was five years ago, right? Like that's when I left AAA to, you know, start working in indie in indie games. There was an order of magnitude fewer games coming out on, you know, on Steam year by year um, compared to compared to now, which I think is is interesting and it's crazy and all of this stuff is affecting how games are. Um, from sort of the bottom up rather than from the top down. That's my that's my whole theory thesis. That's my whole theory in a, in a long form. I I think I think you're like mostly correct. I would quibble maybe a little bit around the edges or like add some more context. One one like I've seen, heard you say this a couple of times that like like placing green light as like kind of like a thing that needed to be defeated in order for this to happen. I think you actually place it as like green light is the start of this happening, right? Like part of like indie games have exist, existed pre. Greenlight pre pre Steam even, but they were kind of like files that you found on a website and always had like a level of sketchiness. This is like Dwarf Fortress and um, yep. uh, and like Net uh, NetHack um, and Rogue, right? Um, things that like people don't like people like normies, for lack of a better term, wouldn't touch. It. They're like that's a file on the internet, and you know all of our like good internet hygiene taught to us by like you know the the 
paranoia of the 90s is like you don't download those files right um some of that still exists today in kind of like like games that you install via like linux linux package installers uh for the purists that are like still won't like run steam or whatever um but i think Greenlight is the first opportunity for a lot of these people to put their thing on a trusted platform right um even though and to your point even though android and ios are um are, are like more open these are still like relatively trusted platforms right like you know um part of this is that like they are new enough systems that like writing malware for phones is like not quite a thing yet um and even if you are running malware it's usually kind of like harmless stuff that's like mean but like not like ruinous right this is also before like a mm. lot of like like the the environment is sandboxed enough or like isolated enough that like even if you write a malicious app maybe it crashes your phone it's pretty hard for it to like steal your banking information um and so there's like more receptiveness on the consumer's part um to your point green light transferring to a much more open system is a big part of this i think to your point like people who part of the issue with game developers stuff, and this is part of my thing about like game developers don't get paid a ton is that mm -hmm. there have always been a lot of more people that want to develop games than there are slots at like you know established companies right yeah. this is the thing that i went through personally right like you know <laughs> I, I chose the route of going into a normal industry rather than trying to do an indie game but to your point like this is also part of what what pushes it right is there a bunch of people with specialized degrees that maybe have a little bit of tougher time going into the industry or enough of enough um let's say like existing capital uh you know, what i'm saying here is like rich parents right or like you know um the kind of our kind of generational thing where like you live at home for longer than the previous generation did which you know maybe isn't necessarily rich but essentially you're not paying rent and so you can afford to sink your time into a game which is a productive endeavor but if so the problem the prob this is the story of stardew valley right that guy basically lived off of his girlfriend for five years right you know developing stardew valley and then actually concerned ape right is the developer and then actually the game came out and made a gazillion gazillion dollars right but if you think about it right the amount of upfront cost that was right. uh, you know and he did that all on his own he solo developed that game right um uh the amount of the uh, the amount of upfront cost associated with that is just like pretty it's pretty high pretty astronomical yeah um that that is like you know the the problem right is like um a lot of even with like you know early stage internet startups right you can quickly get to an mvp and maybe start getting um you know uh getting some revenue there um uh, obviously also the the kind of like investment capital uh is better in kind of startup land than it is in game land because like games games can be can take off but they're not traditionally like invested in by venture capital in the same way that uh that yeah it's because they have publishers yeah well, if you're if you're if you're an indie game studio you're not you're typically not looking for investment in your studio right which is the company right, right. you are looking for investment in the project and you go to a publisher for that and the publisher gets a percentage of your project right yeah and so it's just like a different it's a whole different kind of structure. it's a different model but i also think that just kind of like games as a product um don't meet the same kind of like they don't like they don't have the same um like a successful game will net make a lot of money, but they don't spawn like a successful company in the same way from like an investor standpoint. Um, yeah. And then I think the other, the other part that, that you didn't mention, I think is like actually probably the most crucial is um, 
I would say Unity specifically, but broad, more broadly kind of like the the availability of out-of-the-box engines that let people build things without having to build a lot of the underlying technology, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, even RPG Maker, right? Like I believe Undertale's an RPG Maker game, if I'm not mistaken. Um, game Maker is another one, right? Yeah. Game Maker 2 is the is like the you know, a platform. Well, I've published Game Maker 2 games. Uh, obviously, most of the games that I've published are Unity games, and so, like, our preferred one, right? But then, at that point, you're starting to get, like, specialized people, the right? Yeah. This is one of the things that changes about hiring um, inside of the game industry that I feel like not a lot of people have a good understanding of. Once engines began to get standardized, right? Because you had you had engines, obviously, in, like, the before times, right? You had Source, right? You still had Unreal, obviously, the very early kind of iterations of Unreal. But most of the time, AAA game development was happening with proprietary engines, right, that these, that these developers were making. StarCraft II was developed on whatever that engine is called. I don't even know. And then Heroes of the Storm, another Blizzard game, was also developed on that engine, right? Um... And this was the model. Basically, the company would make the engine and they would make a couple of games out of that engine, sort of. Frostbite would be another good example, right? right. EA had DICE, make Frostbite. They made a couple of games. They handed it off to... Um, they handed it off to... Bioware, Bioware made a couple of games out of Frostbite, that kind of a thing. Uh, or, but what ended like, up happening? Uh, what, what's it called? Bethesda make the creation engine, make games until the end of time. Never update. Yeah, I, they, <laughs> they will never stop. Uh, what, what is the what is the Paradox engine called? Uh, um, uh, like oh, Clashfits. Clashfits. Oh, Clashfits. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. It's like all of that stuff, right? This is this is kind of the way the way things um, kind of like traditionally worked. But now. Most people just take Unreal. Most people just do Unity and Unreal, right? Like, these yeah. are the engines that define almost all of games outside of things like Paradox, who have this engine that does this very specific niche thing that they want, that they, like, want to do, right? Because you have some games, right? Unreal is built for 3D. Unity is pretty open, can be built for a lot of different things, Um and uh, there's other sorts of, you know, there's other engines that have other strengths. Proton, for instance, is an engine that lets you make a, a multiplayer backend sort of in your engine, which is really, really useful because yeah. that's like a, a highly specialized kind of like piece of the work or whatever. Um, Godot is another one, which is like kind of the big yeah. one that people went to after the Unity fiasco a couple months ago. Yeah. Um, and the, I think the interesting thing kind of underwriting a lot of this sort of stuff is that suddenly you're not just hiring talented, smart developers who probably know like compute programming languages, right? But they don't, you train them up on your engine, right? If I go to work on World of Warcraft, right? World of Warcraft has an engine that I don't remember the name. I think it's, I think it's literally called like WoW Edit or something like that, right? Um, you, you, I could be a developer on Fortnite and I go to work at blizzard on world of warcraft and they train me up on their engine right i take my expertise and i just figure yeah i figure it out and i go how do i write this thing you know in this like whatever scripting language that kind of stuff um it feels like now especially in hiring you get unreal developers where it's like okay i'm looking for an unreal developer i'm looking for a senior unreal developer i'm looking for a senior unity developer right these are folks who have a specialization in an engine itself and can work on that engine for like for you for whatever purpose right um which has sort of changed the way it's it's almost kind of like it's almost kind of like saying you know 
I'm only hiring this kind of programmer, right? Like, a, you know, a program a programmer that programs in Python or C or something like yeah. that, right? Yeah. Um, which I don't know if that's – is that, like – that's not happening. You do front-end, back-end, obviously, but uh, – So it, 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 it depends. Um, the kind of general wisdom is that, uh, you know, companies that hire to specific languages or frameworks are not smart to do that, right? Um, there's, there's a little bit around kind of like – um, experience around kind of like a functional versus object-oriented program because functional is relatively new a couple uh, not new but relatively new in commercial applications a few years ago and so and it's just kind of like a different way of thinking about programs but like uh, yes people people will look for certain skill sets but most of the time it's generally thought that like a good programmer is uh, a good programmer but to your point right like the web ecosystem is a set of technologies right and being a web developer is a thing it just kind of it just happens to be that like 90 percent of like most programming jobs are some flavor of web developer right okay um, yeah, yeah yeah um but to to your point essentially it's not it's not just that you're um that you're hiring to to a specialization you're basically cutting your dev staff in half at a certain level right like part of this is that like if you go and work for one of these big companies with their own homespun engine there's generally two classes of developers right there's the you know, it's, it's called like the application level developers that are building things in the engine. And then there's the engine developers that are, uh, you know, building the engine itself, right? And they're generally pretty well separated. On a smaller game, you know, pr a smaller game with that not working in engine, those are generally the same people, but that's just kind of like a resourcing thing. But like, you know, right now, the engine developers for, you know, for a lot of games are employed by Unity and they work for Unity and Unity pays them. Right, like, um, and it's essentially like you know, it's it's application developers that are that are building um, the games on top of that, and that's like a significant reduction in the amount of staff you need uh, in order to like bring something to fruition because you don't need somebody who can like either write a physics engine from scratch or like you know knows OpenGL right and has to like render shapes on screen right like usually there's a level of abstraction that's already built in in, in between there. Um, yeah, this is kind of like how. Um you know, uh, there are, I, I want to say, every time there's like a WoW expansion, right? You have these big kind of titanic systems level upgrades that are that are happening. This is because there are essentially engineers working in the back end of that, of the game to deliver on that. So uh, a good example for, good example for this expansion, man, I can't actually think of too many changes they made. A good example for Shadowlands would be, or I guess saying this happened in Battle for Azeroth, would be changing the way the auction house worked, right? That wasn't a designer. It's not like a game designer went in there and, like, changed the functionality of the auction house window in World of Warcraft, right? That's an engineer who was essentially live editing the engine on which WoW was built in order to create the new auction house instead of the old auction house, kind of like... And, you know, it's funny because these uh, – I, I know some of these people and they describe their jobs in very dramatic terms. You know, if they like you – know, it's, like, it's, it's like upgrading an airplane mid-flight, right? You know? It's like trying to switch over from propeller engines to jet engines in the, middle of, in the middle of a flight kind of thing because they obviously have all these sorts of, you know, whatever um, uh, kinds of uh, – 
I don't even know what I would call it. You, they just have like a lot of things drawing on them, I guess, um, and the the needs that they have for uh, their their attention and time, that kind of stuff. Um, and you also are editing a live game that, like, if you push essentially bad edits, right, you could end up completely borking absolutely everything, right? Which was one of the one of the weird things about stuff like wow, we talked about like the there are four bag slots or something that you get and it's because of the way the auction house was coded into the bag system or like the inventory system or whatever. It's like all of that those kinds of like artifacts. Um all of those kinds of artifacts exist. Anyway This is like the Timos thing um in Riot in, in League of Legends, which is apparently a real thing. Um, like I read yeah. a story by a riot dev about how like you can't like like when they were designing Jinx the her like minds were supposed to like light the bush on fire initially and they didn't have a good way of telling if like where the bushes were but you could tell if a hero was in a bush so the dev the, the dev was like yeah so I spawned a bunch of Timos and if it hit the Timo that was in the bush we could light the bush on fire right which is like you know that's just kind of like an artifact of like the you know initial design decisions that like you know weren't necessarily the most future proof and like taking you know um player notes battlegrounds right when we were at the height of that when we were playing a bunch of it they were like we're gonna take a quarter and not do any new features and just improve performance and they abandoned that after like two weeks because everybody hated it everybody's like where are my new features right like um but you know, yes. Anyway, continue. Yeah, and it's also sort of like the the bunnies, the invisible bunnies that def that describe everything in World of Warcraft, because uh, how the designers essentially found that the easiest thing to do most of the stuff that they were looking to do was to spawn an invisible NPC, and the top NPC on the menu was was bunny right it was like a underscore bunny or something. There's a Kotaku article. This is famous from a couple of years ago. That kind of stuff. Anyway. Um, as this stuff gets standardized, as this stuff kind of gets like baked in, I think, to, to sort of the industry, and we have this sort of thing where you're no longer hiring, or uh, it's not that you're hiring talented developers and then training them up in your engine, right? You're actually looking for developers who have some sort of specialization in an engine. They worked on the engine from one project and now they're moving to another, all of this other kind of stuff. Um, now you have this ability to kind of cross-pollinate pretty easily, right? Somebody who understands working in Unreal because they, they worked in AAA, can then go and buy their own Unreal license and just start making their indie game in Unreal, right? Um, this is the story of dozens and dozens of indie games that I, like, know, some of which I've worked on, right? It's just like, yes, I was a developer on Borderlands, and I made Borderlands, you know, 1, 2, 3, and the pre-sequel, and all of the other spin-off, you know, whatever stupid Borderlands titles, and I just got really, really good at the Unreal Engine, and I wanted to make an indie game, that kind of, that kind of thing. The other thing is, um, I, I actually I do want to say that part of that too is not just buy your own Unreal license, but like many of the engines now have a scheme where you don't pay until you make money, right? They will grant you the license with the understanding that if your project is successful, they will then take a piece of your revenue, which like lowers the barrier to entry immensely, right? Yeah. Like, um, anyway. Uh, yeah. The. I mean, we get our the the way the licenses work is is also very complicated because you can get licenses from other other people. Um, like you can, I don't know. I'm not going to get into that. Whatever, it doesn't matter. Wait, but wait, the do, point do, is, is that this allows for a ton of cross pollination, sure. right? And you no longer are sort of siloing developers off. A, a real thing that used to happen is I would go to work at EA, I would become an expert in the in the Frostbite engine, right? And now all of a sudden, I'm kind of locked to EA. Not. Truly, obviously, anybody can go 
go get a new job. But the barrier to to entry uh, is much is much higher because now I have to prove that well I have all this experience in an engine you don't have access to. Let me you know come and get new experience on your proprietary engine. Now this stuff is transferable inside and outside of inside and outside of a company. I, um, I, at the same time, there's I actually, a lot of sorry. Just real oh, quick, sure. I, I, w- I want to point out that like something you pointed out there that I didn't even think about. That's very important. Is it's not a, like if you want to go from like Unreal to Unity, right? Like. There are people that, one, know both, and two, you have, if you can go evaluate what Unreal skills look like from the outside, right? Like like you said, like you said, people outside of VA can't access Frostbite, right? And so if you want someone to vouch for kind of like the skills inherent in that, you need somebody else who also came from EA that could have spoken to, to Frostbite as an engine. Um, even if you don't have the exact skill match, right? Unreal being not open source, but like open to everybody to use means that that skill is more transferable by its nature um, because it's evaluatable outside of the context of even using it. Um, yeah, that's actually like super true, right? So th- we're breaking down these barriers to developers being able to sort of like leave the AAA, the AAA kind of space. Um, the one other piece of this that I just want to mention because it's kind of happening at the same time of all this other sort of stuff I'm describing, and I do think it matters, but not in a like a super measurable sense, is um, web games uh, and Flash. Ooh. I actually think that the real er sort of version of all of this is Flash and, like, Shockwave and, like, Flash games, right? Um, The truest open platform that used to exist was, like, E-Bombs World or Newgrounds, right? right? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. or, like, the Cartoon Network, right? You know, like, uh, the Cartoon Network website used to have all of those Flash games. I used to play constantly on those sorts of spaces. Um, I don't think that, like, I don't think that that has as titanic an influence, but it does sort of, like, matter to to kind of, like, some of this. And I would probably point to that as some of like a lot of the first indie game developers were people who made a ton of flash games right right yeah absolutely which i think is really interesting and um and part of that is also developers become public and get clout at a certain at a certain point kind of in this era um there are always developers who were you know kind of at the uh, you know at the apex of the 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 sort of industry and had that level of name recognition there's that one quote that's incredibly funny with um the creator of deus ex who would even hate me as describing him that way i can't remember his name off is warren specter i think that's right there's a quote that says uh where he says uh there's this misunderstanding in the industry that uh, games are created by one person, and the quote is says Warren Spector, creator of the Sex. And so you have, um, and so you have, you have Will Wright, you have Hideo Kojima would be a good example. Obviously, Shigeru Miyamoto. Um, you know, you have. Um, uh, Warren Spector, Sid Meier, a couple of these just like high level names. People recognize these names. Tom we, we understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I was I, about to agree with you for yeah, a no, second. No. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I think something that happened was that process also got democratized, right? And part of this is just because of the the nature of the internet, right? Um, The reason that these folks were kind of rising to the occasion in the 90s is because your news related to video games came in magazines, right? And a magazine can set up a, a, a feature on some guy, on Cliff Blazinski, right? Um, much more 
you know, like, like is required to make that sort of happen. But as you get into the mid-2000s, as you kind of get into the era of Facebook and Twitter, now all of a sudden, you have game developers that are just interacting with players, like, day-to-day, -day, right? Like, you know, um, there the barrier between me getting information about sort of the inner workings of my company to uh, uh, a developer is, like, lower and lower, right? And for, you start for getting better these... or for worse. <clears throat> Yeah, true. Yeah, absolutely. Fish, and you start getting right? these these rock stars, right? Yeah. You know, um, we were talking to, before the podcast in sort of behind the blue curtain about Blizzard had this reputation, right? And the reason why is because Blizzard had forums, and the people and the forums had develop like game developers who had the you know they had blue highlights to their names or whatever and they had some you know they had names that were like Ghostcrawler would be an example, right? Ghostcrawler was the lead design, you know. Um, lead designer on World of Warcraft for a long time. He was responding to forum threats. He had direct access to people, which allowed him to create kind of clout, right? It, it, it allowed him to sort of create a cult of personality. Um, and I think that happened with a lot of different developers, and many of them were able to translate that cult of personality outside of the AAA space and into the indie space. A good example of that that's going on right now, they just put up the demo on Steam for Steam Next Fest, would be Stormgate. Uh, the Stormgate developers are X blizzard starcraft 2 developers who basically said hey blizzard doesn't want to make an rts we still love this genre and we want to still make a game for it and that game is now stormgate they got a bunch of they got a bunch of like you know vc funding for it and everything like that this is people following the story of these developers right this is chris metzen quits world of warcraft and decides to make a custom DD setting i think called oroboros is what it's called or whatever right and obviously you know whatever he went back to he went back to blizzard but we won't talk about that it's like this this process also helps and bolsters kind of the sense of indification um i, I actually anyway, do want to i've been like no, 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 it's it's fine. I think I think for a second I also want to talk about the flip side of that, which is like, um, you know, we talk about we're talking about Stormgate, which I guess RTS we know has an audience, but like part of this too is that the expansion of like video games is a thing that normal people do instead of just a nerd thing, right? Like, you know, we're still playing video games, right? Like, I think our parents maybe expected us to grow out of it at some point, right? But like, I don't think a lot of people did, right? Like. Like, even still, like, normal adults that aren't enthusiasts play, like, Madden, right? Like, um, uh, uh, or Call of Duty, right? Um, and I think that part of that means that, be, like, before, the entire industry was a, uh, was an enthusiast industry, right? Like, everybody who played was kind of, like, somebody who was into it. Now, um, there are, there there's another level where, like, most people who engage with it are not enthusiasts, but the people that are enthusiasts are willing to pay um, one, you know, we're older, we've grown in it, we've got disposable income, and uh, two, we have particular desires and desires for things that are less approachable but more tuned to our specific um, desires, and so there's a market opportunity for people to develop those things, right? Like, um, with a lot of indie games, some of that's, like, more story-rich content, some of that's more... Um, uh, more kind of themed content, maybe more political content is a, is a way to put it too. Um, more stuff with a message that's not kind of like pablum, um, uh, again, for better or for worse. Um, and then on top of that, also a desire for games that are more difficult, which maybe will, rolls into the souls likeification thing we'll talk about at some other point. Um, but Or, or kind of that is more specialized that like, you know, 
normal people wouldn't want to approach, right? Like the number, the amount of time it took me to get into Crusader Kings 2 was kind of inordinate, right? But like <laughs> that's Yeah, we call that overhead, right? Yeah. Um, but like I was willing to do it. There were enough people out there to support it so they didn't require people like me who was like a mid-level fan to like bounce off of it three times before they got it, right? Um, um, and now Paradox is like like verging on AAA, I guess is the way to put it, right? Like um, because there is enough enthusiast audience to kind of like propel these specialized projects forward. I think that's an important part of this too. Right? No, I absolutely agree with that. And um, I think it, it, it propels a lot. Of, one of the biggest benefits to the games industry is attention, right? People just care. Actually, to, to come at this from another angle, a long time ago, we were talking about the sexual harassment allegations that were coming at like down as part of uh, as part of Blizzard, right? And I made this point when I was talking about that, where I said nobody cares if the person who you know works in a bread factory, right, a bread bakery, the person I said I think at the time I said the person who slices your bread is a pedophile. Nobody cares about that, and it's not because they don't care about pedophiles; it's because they don't care about bread. Right. Nobody pays attention to the inner workings of the of the companies that make bread. Nobody pays attention to the makeup. You know, there are no superstar bread develop. You know, like people on Twitter with thousands of followers just because they announced, "Hey, I'm starting on Monday at the bakery." Right. You know what I mean? When you work in games, you are automatically highlighted. You have this extra sense of influence and clout just because that's what comes with, you know, that's what comes with working in an industry that people dedicate essentially their lives to in some, in, in some cases, right? You have people whose entire life is sort of built around, I, honestly, my, I, I'm talking about myself in a way, but, you know, how many of my friends are friends through the conduit of World of Warcraft, through my, like, World of Warcraft subscription, right? How many people have friends who are like that, but for any number of other sorts of games that form the basis of their social scene? League of Legends, Destiny, right? You could, you could, it's, it's so easy to fill out that, to fill out that list. Yeah, I mean, and that creates The, the industry that, has entire sub-industries that, like, like, you know, games journalism, for all its faults, right, is, like, at some levels, real journalism that's independent. It's not like, you know, most industries have, like, trade magazines, right? Yeah. Um, which are essentially, like, advanced marketing materials for enthusiasts. And they have their place. And game journalism has a healthy dose of that that's kind of – but that's, that's maybe not great. But the fact that we even consider that maybe a problem is, 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 like, you know, an explanation of just, like, how big it is, right? Like, in any other industry, no one would care about ethics in, like, you know, kitchen equipment journalism, right? Because it's expected that all it is is, like, industry puffery, right? Like, yeah. you know, the idea that games journalism maybe has a purpose beyond just being puff pieces for the industry is a thing that is unique to these kinds of these kinds of industries, right? Yeah, there was a while. Did you know I used to be really into cars when I was a kid? I did not. This all came because I had a... I had a subscription to a magazine. I can't remember what it was called. It was like, it's like whatever the big auto like magazine was, right? And I was reading article after article about these like insane specs on cars I would never be able to afford, right? Like, what is the new Ford supercar? The Ford GT500, right? What's that? What's that engine like? What kind of transmission does it have or whatever and i got really wrapped up in that stuff i mean i was like 13 i thought cars were neat you know what i mean like in the same way that like when i was eight i thought 
trains were deep or, or stegosauruses were deep, right? That kind of stuff. Um, the, the, that underwrites, I guess is what I would say, um, so much of how we approach, uh, how, how we approach games, right? Just this raw attention that people give it is, is wholly and totally unique. One of the things that's been top that we've been talking about, um, kind of like in the industry over the past couple of weeks, um, honestly, the past couple of months at this point is the number of layoffs that have been happening in the, the games industry, which is a truly gargantuan number, right? Um, you know, I think at the, at this point, the number is easily like 10 or 20,000 sort of game developers from basically every AAA publisher, you know, had a round of layoffs. And most folks kind of recognize this as a um, as a sort of, of like a miniature bubble burst where during the COVID years, there was a huge, huge extra surge of investor interest in video games as kind of a space and as kind of a market. Um, but as interest rates went up and inflation, all this other sort of stuff, uh, a lot of those investors got kind of spooked and pulled their money out. Um, and now, you know, there's a belt tightening kind of like happening in sort of the video game space. If you were to go on Twitter or Facebook, right, um, and you were to see the way that people talk about these layoffs, right? Like, what is the coverage of these layoffs like in a Reddit thread about them, right? It is vitriol and anger and there is this like level of kind of um personal sort of like betrayal right. almost in some instances that kind of comes to it and this isn't to say that yes i do i think layoffs suck i think that this state of the industry even as i think video games are in a really good spot like me personally as a kind of analyzing the market and all this stuff i've made that claim you know, a, a number of different times. And Indification, I think, is a good force on the market. It is also a force that does this, right, which is which is very bad. But the reason that people care about this, right, No, if somebody, if somebody gets laid off from the bread factory, who cares? Yeah. Nobody's going to, nobody's going to, there's no article that goes up. There's no tweet that goes viral talking about the injustice of it. There's no, you know... It's it's just it's completely wild and unheard of, and it operates by a completely different set of rules. But one of the things that that does do is support indie game developers because there's so much attention, and people are personality driven, and they want to kind of find and latch on to authentic personalities in this space. You can parlay your experience, you can parlay that kind of social capital into indie games into making indie games, right? Tim Rogers did this famously, right? Before he eventually would kind of pack it up to become a, a journalist, right? But they made, I mean, I don't know, I guess maybe Truck Heck is actually coming out at some point. Do you know about that? I, I mean, like, I don't know. I, like, yeah. Anyway, go. They made their they made their other game. It's the point, yeah. right? You know, he was in AAA. He, he got this kind of cult of personality. He made his indie game, you know, with action button or whatever. And then now he's like kind of going back into, I guess, journalism at this point. I don't know. I don't even know. But whatever. He's just like a, a, a sort of a poster child for this. Um, and now what, what happens is, you know, the 20,000 people who got laid off or whatever, these people can go make indie game studios. And the end point that we are beginning to reach is kind of best exemplified by Prince of Persia. Do you, do you know this Prince of Persia game? Uh, I've I've heard of it. I know he has like the uh, the was it the Killmonger hair is what people are calling it. <laughs> 
the Prince of Persia game that came out, I think it's called, it's Prince of Persia, like something, I don't know, it's got like some subtitle, like The Lost Crown or something like that. I misread this game, <laughs> personally, to be honest with you. This is like, it, this is like industry scuttlebutt. Um, the Prince of Persia game set an announce, or a launch date for um, January 18th, right? Um, January 18th, 2020, 2024, this was in June of last year, and I was looking to place Grime on the calendar. I knew that we were launching the final DLC and the, uh, and the Switch port for Grime, and I put Grime, um, in January. And, um, and basically it was, it was like the same day, right? You know, uh, I was looking, I actually did it a week after Grime came out on the 25th, you know, instead of the 18th. Um... <clears throat> and I looked at the uh, and I and I looked at Prince of Persia and I was kind of like I don't think this is I don't think this is going to sell right I don't think this is going to really like appeal to people all that much it's a two D platforming Metroidvania this is my thought process I was like it's a two D platforming Metroidvania okay it is a sixty dollar game that people are used to paying twenty dollars for Grime is twenty dollars right most you know like Blasphemous is twenty dollars right um, Hollow Knight is twenty like these are these are the games that they're kind of thinking. This is an this is a space that has just been scooped by indies. You can't you're not going to be able to make this work. I was sort of wrong on one end because it looks great. You know, Prince of Persia looks great. People really love Prince of Persia. It has high high kind of traction in the Metroidvania spaces. People really are really enjoying it. It has really high scores from critics and everything like that. But I was right that the market didn't respond to that. Prince of Persia apparently only sold about 300,000 copies, which is a failure by Ubisoft's standards, right? Because it, even at that $60 price point, $70 price point, I actually think, um, you know, it just wasn't able to sort of make the AAA money back. When it's like, boy, I would go wild if I if I could sell something, you know, like if I could sell an experience like that, three hundred thousand dollars. Even even if when I was selling an indie game, I'm gonna sell it for fifteen or twenty bucks, kind of thing, right? To me, this is where indification sort of takes us. The only way that AAA can compete is in scale, because indies are so good at the base stuff and they can deliver on that at a cheaper price point typically right you know you don't need a 60 dollar you know you don't need to put attach a 60 dollar price point to an indie game you you attach a 25 dollar price point to an indie game kind of thing uh like pal world i think is 25 dollars is the other thing that that launched on um january 18th and honestly also sort of scooped you know like prince of persia though there's a little counter programming going on there um and that's just like, to me, this is the microcosm of Indivocation in action. Prince of Persia launches, sells 300K, and unfortunately, that's just like not enough to cut it in the modern 2024 games market. And I think that's probably true for a number of other genres, right? I don't think that, you know, it's, it's not like we're going to see, I don't know, what's like a genre that's only indies at this point? Uh, platformers yeah. the only platformer left is mario right uh, and there's some other no... nintendo games but yeah like yeah Kirby, exactly right? right you know yeah 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 sure 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 this used to be the genre that dominated all gaming right this is in like the 16 8 and 16 bit era right all of these games are sort of are sort of platformers but now you know you can make super mario you know the the super mario like wonder kind of 
you know, versions of games. And then Pizza Tower, essentially, right? And honestly, platformers are so saturated that most indie game publishers aren't signing them because like there's just so many indie game platform everybody wants to make a platformer apparently that kind of th that kind of thing right um and uh and i think the places where games are where AAA is go is competing and will compete is on uh stuff like starfield right um or like uh you know horizon zero dawn these open world games right open worlds are really big and expensive gta 6 right like this is the stuff that like a triple a game can kind of like muster um there's a little bit in here that's also about multiplayer right um but honestly even that is getting sort of low-key scooped by by indies right lethal company and you know uh oh god what the fuck is it Deep Rock Galactic, oh, yeah. right, are beating out titles like Back for Blood, which is a Warner Brothers title, right? Uh, Redfall, which is a Microsoft title, that are in the same sort of that are in the same sort of genres. Um, yeah, so, yeah. I, I I think the thing there is that like anything that is highly competitive and requires like good infrastructure to run is still going to be in the AAA space, right? Like, um, and by highly competitive, like where like the actions have to be against each other, right? Like the reason that like I'm gonna what, what will I, I will call them I'll call them bro shooters are still mostly AAA is one you know normies aren't is into the kind of indie market right and two in order for these games to work at a level that doesn't feel terrible you need a, a level of money behind it right the closest thing that ever came to it was Player Unknown's Battlegrounds and even that had its like like that got surpassed by like you know Fortnite and uh and you know Apex Legends at some level, right? Like you know at the, at the offerings from the big but, companies. So the funny thing is that that's actually a good example of what I'm talking about when I talk about the flip, right? Where indies drive triple A. Right. Fortnite because is an is essentially an indie game that gets aped by all of these triple A games, right? And expands kind of like up and out. I guess um, is uh, I don't know. I think I think that is like an interesting. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess I, I a phenomenon. I don't even know what I would call it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, but that's that's also kind of like, I mean, but part of that is standard kind of like, um, it's like less unique to video games, more kind of like smaller, more nimble companies can take risks. And yeah. then the bigger companies that are more established can like follow trends um, in a way that they can throw like money and resources behind. Um, and like, and once it's like proven to be like a thing, can be more willing to do right like the the problem with a battle royale style game is maybe not like you know what i'm not you know maybe not anybody ever thought of it but also like you know doing a new thing for a big company is sometimes a risk that they don't want to take right and then um arma 3 and then player knows battlegrounds proved the model and it's like well we could do that without it looking like you know an asset flip which player knows battlegrounds i don't know if that's totally fair to it but it looks like an asset flip if it isn't um type of deal um yeah yeah um anyway that's my that's my like big thesis that's my like big kind of pitch for for, yeah. for this stuff so, some i actually think that the the well the well of indie games is now so great that um it's almost creating a new you know you might say we have triple a games people said quadruple a do you remember do you remember yeah. this like quadruple, they, they quadruple a was like what what was like the like maybe call of duty right like the very 
GTA, the very big titles, right? But uh, Yeah, to me, I think of Diablo 4 as a quadruple A title. It, nine years of development with 5,000 developers over that time, and then that thing made like $4 billion or something, like Billion, you know, like billion with a B dollars, right? Um, that to me is like a quadruple A, uh, a quadruple A kind of game. Whereas something like I don't even know, it just feels like there are a lot of like other sort of stuff that are coming out that are um, a little closer to the ground uh, in terms of sort of like scope and expectation. Maybe um, Total War Warhammer Three would maybe be a good triple, like triple A game. This is a, right. this is a straightforward kind of triple A game yeah, yeah. release, right? Yeah, my, my, my and instinct then, was to you maybe know, call yeah. it double A, but that's like also not quite right. I think you're right. It's, it's... Yeah, I mean, technically, like it's Sega, but it's also, uh, yeah, I don't, know. I don't know. I also think that like strategy games are just like a really different space in general, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it's funny to me that strategy games have kind of become and adopted these games as a service model. Um, I am flirting at the edges with, uh, you know, like me, me and Hearts of Iron 4 are staring at each other across the room, kind of like giving each other eyes. And I'm like, hmm, maybe I'll, maybe I'll play a little hearts of iron 4 again right but like hearts of iron 4 has so much dlc at this point that paradox has bundled it all into a subscription so you can pay five bucks a month to get access to all of the D dlc content and i was like oh my god they're like reinventing the subscription model um and you know apparently they've done that for a bunch of the other titles because there's just like so much dlc that has come out over you know like the years and years and years and um anyway i just think i just think all that is like kind of interesting yeah um I mean, part, part of that is that, like, the draw of, like, a Paradox game and, and the other Grand Strategy games is, like, you play it. It, it's, it, is, it is effectively a live service game without a live service component, right? Like, um, essentially a game that you can play endlessly. And so, like, throwing more, more knobs to turn to make your gameplay a little bit more unique. Um, yeah, like, people were cheer. They just announced for Hearts of Iron 4. They just announced a Brazil... I can't remember what it's called something like allegiance to like test test of allegiance or something like that it's a brazil chile and argentina dlc pack for hearts of iron 4 which is obviously world war ii um and uh and like the big selling point is that they made national focus trees for those those three nations right and one of the interesting things about Paradox games in general is that Paradox games have asymmetrical difficulty that is built on country right if i start my game in in hearts of iron 4 playing the united states that's functionally easy mode right. the united states is so transcendently powerful just by the nature of kind of the historical position you know the u.s was kind yeah. of like in. for the same reasons that the united states helped win world war ii right like the united yeah, states yeah. is powerful in the well, game. also nazi germany is, is the same sort of thing right um, and there are challenges right it's not like it's not like it's easy right but like when you're a giga advanced hearts of iron 4 player you are playing hard mode algeria you build no planes and you have to conquer the world it's like who the fuck does that how do you do that and the answer is you have this insane mastery of systems that like are just like endlessly buck wild and you are just like taking so much advantage of cheese in the same way that like you know a high-end player of mythic plus in world of warcraft is taking advantage of cheese like 
standing on an object in order to, you know, trick the boss into spawning a pool on the ground that you are standing in, but because you're on the object, you're above the pool and you're not taking damage. Stuff like that, right? Like, when when you would otherwise get to a key level that that damage would one-shot you, you're now standing on objects, you know, who... I hope I hope you have fun up there, kind of thing. It's like people are doing essentially that for Hearts of Iron Four, and then making YouTube videos about it and getting a quarter of a million views. And it's just like wild to me that this whole ecosystem exists, and it kind of exists a little bit outside of the frame of like edification that I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. No, that all that all makes a lot of sense. Um, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I think it's I think it's nothing but a good thing, right? Like, yeah. You know, um, I yeah I think that you know when people talk about the, to use that Hollywood example when people talk about that era in Hollywood the late 60s and early 70s um it's it's one of the like golden eras of Hollywood filmmaking right um it's one of those eras where people you know film classes are just all about this era of movies and so many classic you know sort of movies are coming out right then and you have these really great interesting stories right then before kind of um uh the you know the industry changed kind of all over again uh which ended up happening kind of with star wars the the birth of the blockbuster right you have jaws you have star wars that are happening in the late 70s and kind of um bridge into a very different 80s for for movie making um so, I mean, yeah, hell, there, I there's even there an aspect are. of that that, like, translates to, like, YouTube, right? Like, you know, um, which kind of gets you more, like, independent creators that can kind of do what they want with, like, cheap consumer-grade stuff and still be incredibly popular and incredibly popular and incredibly profitable, right? Yeah. Like, you know, um, but yeah, I think I think I generally agree with you, yeah. Okay, hell yeah. Well, that's it. We've been um, up for an hour. Yeah. How's, uh, how's your week been? What have you been playing? A lot of World of Warcraft. We've been pushing keys in World of Warcraft is the thing. So I am now three thirty fifty four. I think is my is my Raider IO rating, um, which is just means that I've pushed twenty twos and everything on Tyrannical, and I'm going to end up pushing a bunch of keys on Fortified. Kind of next week, we're going to kind of see how hard I can how hard I can go, how high I can I can climb, um, which is pretty interesting. Because I got the legendary axe. You know about that? Did I talk about this? No, you didn't. Go for it. Yeah, I got the legendary axe um, in uh, in WoW, and frankly, it's the greatest. And all the haters are lame, and I don't know. The axe is great. It's super fun. Um, you know, I ha I have a complicated relationship with a lot of sort of like WoW kind of like item design. I have a lot of I have a lot of like complicated thoughts about some of this sort of stuff. There are sometimes items that feel like legendary, right? Um, the gavel, the the gavel of the jailer is a good example of this. Um, called gavel of the first arbiter. It's actually probably my favorite designed item in the entire game it was a really powerful two-hander drops off the jailer has a unique you know kind of like piece of art and it had this on use effect that i think had a four minute cooldown but it spawned a soul and then you attacked the soul and you got a buff for a minute right and the buff had a different effect depending on which realm you judged the soul to go to because the idea is this is the jailer's hammer he was the original arbiter and he's sending 
souls to places. So you, you spot a soul, you judge the soul. If you send it to Revendreth, you put a bleed on the target that siphons health, right? Um, if you s put the soul to Ardenweald, um, every attack does like a little burst of AoE damage, right? Um, if you send the soul to Maldraxxus, it puts a stacking single target dot on the, on the target. You can't control where it goes, it just goes where it goes and does what it does. Insanely powerful weapon, best in slot for, for like everybody. Incredibly cool effect. I really, I really loved the, the gavel of the first arbiter, but it was epic. It was not legendary, right? Um, which is interesting uh, and kind of and kind of unique. What like differentiates a legendary weapon versus sort of uh, versus an epic one? Um, and I don't know. Maybe the answer is just like rarity or whatever. Firalath is uh, a super rare. Most of our friends we've been killing Farak every every week, and a lot of them don't have Firalath. I know two, uh, me and one other person I know have Firalath, and that's it. And that's out of all of my you know twenty plus two wielding strength contacts who have been who have been playing WoW since you know the kind of the beginning of season three. Um, but Firalath is really strong. It's really fun. It makes me do dumb shit, which is pretty great. Um, there's a whole quest line to to craft. Did, which took you know maybe a quarter million gold but i had 17 so who cares kind of thing um and now we're using it to to push high keys and really like crush some of these you know i don't know crush some of these uh these keys so yeah there that's it that's where i'm at nice very cool a uh, little sad that like you know i, I feel like um Monks at least haven't gotten a super cool weapon in a while. Like I enjoyed the Valkyrie spear from last expansion, but that even wasn't like like a high tier weapon. It was just like a fun thing with a fun effect. Um, yeah, but you know, such as there's like, a good one this year, right? The the fist doesn't Urktos's fist have a cantrip? Does I don't think it has a kit. I hope it doesn't. Otherwise, I've been leaving damage on the floor. Um, uh, Hold on, where's the? Let's see, monk best in slot. Because I'm pretty sure it is, and uh, uh, oh, Farak has a cantrip weapon, the cantrip polearm, um, Rashan the Immortal Blade. Oh yes, I no, I, I have I have one of those, but it is not better than my 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 two handers or my my two single handers. Um, yeah, uh, the the thorn collar claw, claw I have one of, but it does not have a cantrip on it. Um, okay. Uh, you know, maybe eventually I will get a, an immortal blaze uh, of heroic level. Um, but uh, on my side, I've been mostly uh, playing cyberpunk, going through that again. It's still, it's, it's, it's weird. Cyber, like, even with the, the, the changes, like, I'm enjoying the game, but, like, the game has this, like, weird binary difficulty, and maybe it's just the build I went, which is kind of like the, I really like handguns. Uh, as like a like a like a style, right? So I'm like maxed out on cool, and the the top level talent there is kind of like, um, you know, headshots do like absurd amounts of damage, and like I had to crank the difficulty up to like have a challenge, but it's like one of those things where it's like I will like if I'm on, I will like wipe encounters super easily, but like if I like miss my rhythm by a little bit, I will just like go down in a hit, which is kind of hilarious. Um, uh, but you know, still having fun with it. I don't think it's a particularly balanced game, but I'm I, I am enjoying it. I'm enjoying the scenery. Um, I think the game is. It reminds. It feels like Skyrim to me in a way. In that, like you know, game's not exactly 
the toughest thing in the world, and a lot of it relies in, you know, and sometimes you can, you know, you stand outside the room and you shoot the thing in the head 10,000 times because it's pathing, can't get you out to the door. It's not quite that bad, but it gets into that realm. Um, uh, and then on the other hand, I'm playing a lot of Street Fighter. I, like, literally today I hit uh, Platinum uh, Platinum 4, which made me happy, yeah. Um, which is interesting because, like, I, like, got, like, a week ago, or no, two week, two or three weeks ago, I got, like, one fight away from it. And this went on, I just, like, went on, like, mega tilt and, like, just kept losing LP. And I ended up actually at plat two for, like, a minute. And then, like, you know, over the course of, like, a couple days, and I was like, wait, I just need to calm down and, like, play a little bit more defensively and think of a little bit more about what I'm doing. And I climbed right back up. And, like I said, I just crested um, into plat four. And hopefully I can keep it up there. But, like, you know, um, I've been thinking about trying Tekken 8, but it's one of those things where it's like if I put time into Tekken 8, which is an absurd – like, you know, Tekken games are kind of absurd that, like, am I going to – I don't know if I can play both Tekken and Street Fighter at the same time and not, like, lose my mind. Um, uh, and uh, then I just, like, dabble in other stuff as, as things go along. Um, like, you know uh, – I haven't really picked up any of the other games in in a, in a hot minute, but um, I've been thinking about uh, Commander slash EDH for a while, just because you know, in a uh, well, I guess just under two months, maybe six ish weeks, we're gonna be at PAX East and I get to play some Commander. Um, I've been following this channel. It's called like uh, I'm I'm going to go find it right now. It's called like Salubrious Snail or something like that. I will put a link in the description. Uh, Yes, Lubrius Snail, I got that right. And he talks a lot about EDH. And one of the things he talks about that I think is interesting is, like, your commander, like, pointing your commander deck to be the appropriate power level because it is a casual format. And we have gotten to the point where commander is such a popular format that there are powerful, hard-hitting, like, winning decks. And, like, this is the thing about magic in general that's kind of interesting yeah. to talk about. But I think it's... it's most at the forefront in Commander, which is, is which, which, um, uh, can you hear me? I can hear you. Lutz is telling me the broadcast died. Uh, it says it reconnected. When did it reconnect? When did it die? How long ago did it die? It should be back. Anyway, we will... For the people who lost the thank, thank you for calling that out. I just got a notification on my computer. Um, for whatever you missed, it'll be in the podcast release. Um, <laughs> True, uh, as as one of the other podcast listeners to puts it, is like this is a podcast that has a Twitch live stream attached to it. If you happen to make it, um, uh, uh, but yeah, so like just like as a format, magic is or as a format commander is supposed to be a more casual format. And so like building decks to each level to, to like appropriate power levels is kind of important. He talks about this interestingly about how like, you know, soul ring is a super powerful card, but it is so common that it can be basically in every deck, but it kind of like it's grooves with the power level of kind of decks, kind of like how counterspell, which is a, easily available card or generally available card but it's so much better than any of the other counterspells because counterspell was kind of a mistake um kind of skews the power level of of of, uh, of the format right because like your second best counterspell and your second best mana ramp are not going to be as good but they're also probably going to be more expensive because they're rarer 
right? So, like, everybody has a soul ring, but not everybody has, like, you know, a shock land, right? Um, and those are the things you need to think about when building to, like, a group, right? Like, like I've been talking to you about this. I'm building an Azorius deck just designed to be kind of miserable to play against because I'm a terrible person. <laughs> I will probably inflict that on you guys once at most, right? Like, yeah. I am not going to, like, sit there and, like, you know, play that all the time. And even, like, the AC the Guy or Tyrant deck that I run, right? Like, I will probably play that once against your ninjas deck and then, like, move to a deck that is... Like, I'm, I am I actually... Like, I have one, my Chaos Space Marines deck, which is still stock, so I don't have to worry about... um about Like, it's it just same as it was out of the box. And then I'm going to build another deck that's, that's supposed to be a little bit more mid, mid-range power level so that I don't just, like, you know, cause misery at the commander table. Do you, do you have any thoughts on this? I have lots of thoughts about this, and we can honestly break it out into a whole podcast. Uh, but yeah, that's definitely true. This is part of why I like the Ninjas deck in the way that I have built it. Um, Yuriko is actually a super, super meta CEDH uh, commander, right? But the way that I have built it is essentially it's an aggro deck, which is very rare in commander. It's hard to make an aggro deck work. But with Yuriko's ability and the ability to run combat tricks, right, um, which is just like a fun and interesting sort of like way to do it. Um, you can actually build a pretty powerful like Eureka engine as you know, we've seen cause my deck works the way that it does that tends to slip under other, other decks, right? When I'm playing Eureka, I'm not really thinking all that much about ramp. I'm thinking a lot about turning, turning cards sideways, right? Getting my attacks in, getting Eureka on the board, right? Flipping stuff from the top of the deck. And even if I'm flipping low level shit, I'm still blitzing the whole, you know, I'm lowering the whole kind of threshold of the board. The soul ring point is really interesting. A soul ring to me is like flash in league of legends where yes, every champion takes flash. Every commander deck should have soul ring, but soul ring is, but commander is a better game for soul ring and league of legends is a better game for flash. Um, so even though, yeah, they are just, like, so incredibly out there powerful, um, it matters. The reason why Soul Ring is interesting is because if you play it optimally, you are also playing suboptimally in a way. Because you, the person who drops a Soul Ring on turn one paints the biggest target of all time onto their back. And that's a really interesting dynamic, I think, right? All of a sudden, someone is the archenemy because... They're on their first untap, they're gonna have four mana. Everybody else has two. That's huge, right? Um, and I I just think that's really interesting. I think that makes for really like interesting kind of games. And um, and that interesting dynamic is better than the balance of because like the 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 thing that people always say about Soul Ring is like it it's you know, it's not the 99, it's the 98. Because every deck is also going to have a soul ring in it, basically. So you're not actually making a decision on what to include in the 99 of your of your commander deck. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I just think that's the way that it that's the like the way that it works, uh, at least from kind of like my perspective. I don't know. I what there's a part of me. I've been meaning to upgrade my um, I've been meaning to upgrade my Eureka deck for a while because they put out a set, a Kamigawa set that included some black excuse me black blue ninjas, so I could swap some. Excuse me. Some cards out of the Eureka deck and just change its kind of momentum in a different in a different sort of way. Um, 
add some more ninjas in there. I have so many stupid fucking ninjas in that deck. I love that deck so much. Um, and I think maybe I, I could be convinced to actually kind of like go through and uh, and do that. Um, I also have a couple of other cards that I've been like meaning to get. But there's a really there's a big part of me that wants to just like make a new commander deck. There must be so many new commanders that have come out since then um, that I'm like, oh, I could actually do something interesting here, right? Yeah. Um, if I were to, you know, I don't know. Yeah. Dig deep. There's like I, the way I've been doing it is like there's a theme. Um, that I have in mind, like, so the, this mid-range deck that I, or mid, mid, not mid-range as a style, but like mid, mid-power mid deck that I'm building is built sure. on this stupid thing I like to do, um, which is like, it's called, it's a red-black theme that I call Cap and Sack, which is you use red's kind of like temporary um, control, and you pull it. Yeah, and then you sack. sack, oh my god, yeah. that's brutal. Yeah, um, but it's like, you know, it's, it requires pieces, right? It's not super um, reliable. But the only commander with that effect, uh, or there's two, and one's the Beast, I think, from Doctor Two, and the other's Sauron from Lord of the Rings. Um, and there's not particularly, like, repeatable either. They're just kind of, like, mm -hmm. enter the battlefield effects, and, like, the, you know, there's no flicker effects in black or red, right? So yeah. it's just, like, you know, I might make the commander a sacrifice-based commander um, instead and just, like, you know, use them on the side. Um, uh, like, this, this is Zorius' deck. Here, I've got it sitting right next to me. I have six potential commanders. Um, yeah. I've got Grand Arbiter Augustine. I've got... Who's that? I've got Azor. I've got... What is this? El Elminster. I've got... Yes. Guafa Hazid, which is probably not... Oh, my God. Guafa Hazid is such a dumb card, but I love it. Uh, what a great inclusion. Death, Deathos of Miletus, which is, like, uh, one that, like, you know, is, like, a can't be attacked by big things. And then Lavinia of Tenth, right? These are all, like, the legendary cards that I ended up putting in this stupid fucking deck. But, like, you know... Um, that's because Azorius is, like, you know, a pretty strong theme, right? Like, Cabin Stack is not a strong theme, so there's not a lot of commander support for it. Um, but there is, um, you know, there are things that like will work off the sacrifice engine or whatnot. Um, I feel like I, man, I should make a bunch of deck. I, sh I feel like I should make a samurai deck at some point, even though samurai are, are historically absolutely garbage. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I feel like there's just gotta be fun shit to do with, with samurai. As, as I have been looking as, as I was looking through like the, um, disease cap and sap effects, there's like a pretty strong, uh, there's like, like if I did blue, red, black. Um, there's a pirate commander and there's a bunch of pirates in there. There's also some vamp, like, like, like cabin sack is like, Oh, I know that. I know that pirate deck. Yeah. Um, there's like some vampires that like work on the sack side. And I kind of want to make at some point a, um, you know, uh, like, you know, the Warhammer three faction, like a, a vampire pirates deck. But, um, it's also like, it's also one of those things where like, you know, the more you, you start to put these things together, you realize that like, you know, hundred cards, really isn't that many cards right and you're never going to get all the dumb stuff that you want in a deck so um is it is, yeah is this how you fix commander and make it like less com competitive brain it's like now the decks are 200 cards <laughs> uh yeah i guess so um okay yeah what else has been going on have you watched more sopranos since we last talked um i don't think since we last talked um instead i have watched um uh, the first six episodes or so of the Clone Wars, um, the Dave Filoni Clone Wars, um, mm -hmm. uh, 
which is, as far as I know, the only thing besides the movies that are canon in both the Legends and the uh, and the, uh, the the canon timeline at, at this point, um, uh, which was interesting. Because, like, I knew there was something up with the canon. I was, like, asking – my girlfriend is very into the Clone Wars. She's very into the Bad Batch. She's like, what's the canonness? And she's like, it's canon as far as I know. I looked it up, and I looked it up. It's like, everything but Season 7 is canon in Legends as well as being canon in uh, – in the new canon, um, uh, which is, is interesting. Um, apparently, Disney Plus has the episodes in like a different order than they were released in. Um, it's interesting watching the show because, like, apparently it's 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 all anthology stuff, right? Like, I guess they expect you to come in with like knowledge of who all these characters are, because like like characters that I'm just not familiar with, like Ventress, right? Will just like be like, and here's Ventress. It's like who? And it's like she's the bad guy, right? Like. Um, and, like, obviously, you know, I get, like, I know who Obi-Wan and Anakin are, but the first time they appear on screen, there's no, like, you know, and I'm Anakin, you know, the hero of, you know, like, the, the hero of the cloak, you know, it just kind of, like, expects you to know it. Um, I will also say that, like, I have been, um, I have heard a lot of good things, and maybe I'm a little bit, like, underwhelmed by anticipation. Maybe that's because the earlier episodes, and also I think, ultimately, it is a kid's show, um, and it's got a relatively short running time, and so, like... You know, like, there's an episode early on where, I think it's called Delta Squad. It's essentially, a batch of clone troopers, like, fail their test, and they're given one opportunity to retake it. And, like, in, like, most shows, there'd be, like, at least a montage of them training. And, no, it's just, like, they get an inspiring speech. Like, these, a couple of them get, like, inspiring speeches, and that, like, makes them good at being clone troopers, right? Which is kind of, like, I noticed that, but I'm not convinced that, like, you know, what would it be like you know like 12 year old me which is i think what the target audience would be would have noticed that so maybe it's fine um i don't know do you have do you have strong thoughts on the clone wars uh i like the clone wars quite a lot as a sort of setting is that what you, is that what you're talking about I'm talking about the clone wars day, the dave filoni show Okay, uh, I have seen some of the Clone Wars, the Dave, Dave Filoni show, but not all of it. Um, I think I watched into season like three or whatever. Eventually, it starts creating a bunch of characters that it will go on to reference sort of down the line, basically. Right, um, because the Bad Batch is, is basically a Clone Wars spinoff show as far as I know. Yeah, um, and uh, and there's like a bunch of like, do you know the the character? There's like a bounty hunter. He's like a frog guy, and he has these like tubes coming out of in a big wide brimmed hat. Um, he's like in stuff, Ellis? but like he, that's like a Clone Wars character. I'm sorry, what? Does he have a triangle head? Is it Ellis? No, God, okay. I can't remember. What is that bounty hunter's name? Um, it's like L Dashless. He's one of the guys who trains the clones along with like Brick. Um. Oh, uh, God, what the fuck is this guy's name? He's like, he just shows up so much. Oh, uh, fuck, I found, okay, okay show me, what's the website? <sighs> Cad Bane, Cad Bane. Oh, Cad Bane? Um, That's, yeah. Isn't, isn't Cad Bane like a famous, like, I've heard that name before. He's from, he's from the Clone Wars, is I'm pretty really? sure. I think, that, I think oh! that's where he, he came from. Oh, interesting, Okay. I see. I, I wouldn't have called him a frog guy, but I get what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, he's a Duros. Um, 
but yeah, um, I have not seen Cad Bane in the Clone Wars yet, but like I'm still relatively early. yeah. So like Cad Bane, I think is like a good example of this sort of stuff. The thing I like about the Clone Wars is it just lets you do like pretty simple like World War II serials kind of like stuff. There's a couple of like early Clone Wars episodes that are just like really straightforward and fun. Um, that it's like. You know, there's one where I think it's Plo Koon and he's in space um, and there's like a bunch of it's like a new Jedi or something and like a, like a bunch of uh, droids like, you know, they like fighting like a bunch of battle droids. And it's just like a it's a simple story of two soldiers in a dangerous situation. They're surrounded by, you know, enemies and they make a clever decision to get out of it. This is like perfect for Clone Wars. This is like my, my platonic ideal of like a Clone Wars episode. Um, you know, there's an episode that's about, it's just about like the siege of this one city in the outer rim and Mace Windu and maybe Obi-Wan is there or something. And it's just like, it just tells the story of this battle, this siege kind of from beginning to end. And that's just like, I don't know. There's just something really uh, kind of like perfect about the, the, the sort of setup and the vision for this. And it is so it's the opposite of The Last Jedi. You know how everybody says for The Last Jedi, it doesn't feel like Star Wars. I, I don't make that contention, but I know that a lot of people I, do. I make that contention. Clone Wars. Yeah, exactly. Clone Wars feels but like Star Wars. Yes. It is the, the it, like, it feels more like Star Wars than some of the movies, right? Than like some of the original trilogy, I would probably say. Um, and it's just like, that is good. That that is like it's. I don't know. It's just it's it's good. It is a little bit of a kids show for me though. Um, and I wasn't able to kind of like get all the way through to the other side. Um, even if it probably you know competes with like Avatar: The Last Airbender or something like that, as just like a neat, interesting kids show that is you know serialized in I, that kind of way. I will say that like I am not a huge fan of the art style either. Like um, Jar Jar. And uh, and Count Dooku in particular look wacky to me, um, <laughs> um, but you know, uh, I mean, yeah, Dooku is interesting because he he's based off of the Gendy Tarkovsky design from the the Clone Wars animated thing from, from that, that Clone he did. Wars is what that's here. I, I looked this up. Correct. It, it's yeah, Clone Wars and the Clone Wars, which is the yeah, and Clone Wars. No, the uh, is I think the best Star Wars thing. Like, just, like, it is so Star Wars, which is what I love about it. Um, uh, anyway, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, otherwise, I've just been chilling. Nothing, you know, my, my YouTube comment is a lot of, uh, content is a lot of woodworking stuff these days. Um, oh, my God. Your plaid shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Where's the Hawaiian shirt, Mango? Uh, I'm watching you. You're changing. You're a whole different person. <laughs> I don't even know you anymore. Part of that's just the winter, but I, I, I feel that. Sure. Um, what about you? Have you been up to anything else? Um, I have been playing a little bit of Grime. I've been playing a lot of Satisfactory. Uh, we ended up making a big multiplayer server for Satisfactory, and um, I am just so hyper about this game and the numbers. It is so much more draining than I think it is or should be, um, in like a true in like a true sense. Um, it just like takes more of my sort of like time and attention uh, to to like do it. But there's just like something so satisfying about going. Okay, we have a shortage of X. We need to make more X. 
how are we going to do that? And I sit down and I do the math and I go, okay, so this node of iron is bringing in, you know, 240 iron ore per minute that every smelter can smelt 30 iron ore per minute, which means I need eight smelters and it's going to create 240 iron ingots. And some of those ingots are going to go to rods and some of those ingots are going to go to plates. And then we're going to go find the rods and the plates at this rate and that thing. And it's just like all that stuff. I just find like really fun, really compelling. Um, and the ability to organize a factory um, kind of hor like, like uh, not just horizontally like in Factorio, but vertically up and down um, is, is really useful, right? Um, you know, I have these huge, huge stacks of conveyor belts that are all on top of each other, um, you know, bringing in huge lines of one product here or there kind of thing. And just all of that is, I don't know, it's really fun. It's really good. I'm having a good time with it. So I guess that's, you know, the, the, the real answer. I've also been playing some grind. I have decided now that Grime, the definitive edition, is out, I am going to definitively edition the game. I'm going to definitively go in, beat the game, do all the bosses. Um, I, so far, cannot fucking find the Vulture. I know the next boss is supposed to be the Vulture. I know I'm right there, but I just can't fucking find where he is um in order to progress to the next uh to the next area i also have been using the carven great sword because i'm doing a strength build because strength builds are more fun in that stupid game um and i can't remember where the jaw axe is i want to get the jaw axe because i know that it's around here somewhere but i can't remember where specifically it is and so i've just like been looking for the jaw it's just like i'm trying to do all this stuff without um you know like without any uh without any kind of bullshit i think right now i'm using the carbon uh the carbon greatsword and the pillar slab which is another strength scaling weapon that is really dumb uh and and yeah but i was actually surprised how quickly i was able to beat some of these bosses um it took me so many tries it feels like to beat some of the the first bosses in the game but now like when i first played the game but now uh i guess i'm just i guess i'm just fucking better or something who knows um, I, I, I find that to be the case with a lot of um souls likes um i'm mm. sure we'll talk about this when we talk about souls like vacation but um a lot of it is just kind of like learning the game and then the, your second pass through it is a lot quicker than your first pass um yeah uh yeah i'm like i don't know i might go back and try that at some point I just haven't haven't had the time because i you know yeah so many so many games so much content to consume buddy so much content to consume i agree uh, okay well when does madam web come out oh my god i have no idea you have to when deal with that maybe i i so, so the nerd crew the, you know, Larry Litter Media did their new, a nude crew thing for Madam Web. Because I saw the tickets went on sale. It's in like uh, three weeks or something. Uh, February. Oh, it comes out on Valentine's Day. Is that where oh you're going to God. take your take your? Uh, I your fucking spouse? guess. <laughs> no, no way. Uh, but yeah, I, we, we can definitely do Valentine's Day, I guess. Uh, oh, man. <laughs> we can definitely do Valentine's Day. Uh, Madam Web. Web. I I might. Oh, I, I, so I have I have that Monday off for President's Day. So maybe I'll go see it on President's Day. That's how I want to spend my President's Day with uh, Madam Web. Uh, yeah. Blech. Okay. Anyway, uh, I think it's everything that I had, buddy. You have anything else you want to talk about? Uh do I have anything else I want to talk about? Oh no 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 no. All right. Uh, well. Uh, if you'd like to email us about any of the things we talked about on this podcast, um, you can email us at nerdsplaygames at gmail.com or podcast at nerdsplaygames.com. You can follow us at twitch.tv slash nerdsplaygames or youtube.com slash nerdsplaygames. 
Um, rate reviews for there are podcasts. Uh, links will be down in the description. But do you have anything else you're looking to promote? I have one thing that I'm looking to promote this week. It's Steam Next Fest, and I have a game in Steam Next Fest. It is Cryptmaster. Um, I have been talking about Cryptmaster for a while. It's it's getting closer and closer to uh, to release. The demo is up, so if you haven't played the Cryptmaster demo, play that. But also, we are doing a D&D stream for Cryptmaster this Thursday, 10 a.m. Pacific, where Lee... One of the developers on the game who voices the Cryptmaster is going to run a game of D&D for a couple of us who are going to be playing the characters in Cryptmaster. And I just think that's it's 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 going to be wild. It's going to be a lot of fun. That's Thursday at 10 a.m. Oh, I just opened the Steam page. And who is in the lower right hand corner now broadcasting? Oh, my but- God. But my good friend, but how are you both places at once? <laughs> good question. Listen, the world may never know, okay, buddy? <laughs> All right. Well, with that, I'm going to say until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners. <laughs>